everyone. I am here today with Dr. Brian Sloan, who is an emergency medicine physician who completed a fellowship in sports medicine. And he is here today to talk with us about musculoskeletal problems, topics, all of the things. Hello, Welcome. Dr. Grigsby. I'm How so are glad you? you're here. Thank you for having me. It's my honor. We are going to be doing lots of things uh, that are part of emergency medicine, especially broken bones. I think we all feel like we see all that stuff all the time. Every day. Every day. And we're going to be talking about a couple other sports medicine and musculoskeletal complaints. So before we get into kind of broken stuff, let's talk about strain versus sprain. Oh, yes. The one we get confused so frequently. So <laughs> sprain, you look, think of sprains as a ligament um, that is attached to two different bones that, that gets injured. Um, typical sprains, you'd think of a, um, an ACL, an anterior cruciate ligament sprain, or an anterior talofibular ligament ankle sprain. And typically those are graded in one, two, or three. One or two are usually stable sprains, and three being unstable sprains. And the strain is your typical muscle or tendon injury. Um, you have strained your hamstring, or you've strained your bicep. Um, and those typically are treated with the RICE treatment that many people have heard about, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. So that's a really difference between the two. But that nomenclature is commonly messed up. So strains are tendons, like the T is tendons mm -hmm. and muscles, mm -hmm. and sprains are ligaments. Yes, exactly. All right. All right, now we can go to real broken stuff, okay? So I know it matters for kids where you break the bone in relation to a growth plate. Do you want to talk about these fun little, uh, let's call them the Salter-Harris fractures? Yeah, that's what they are? Yes, yeah, so very unique to pediatrics. So if you divide a bone up into three different parts, the epiphysis or the physis, those are synonymous terms, okay. is where the growth plate is located. It's typically at the end of a long bone. The metaphysis is that funnel shape as it goes up to the shaft of the long bone. And then finally, the diaphysis is the shaft of the long bone. So those are the terms you have to understand first. In the Salter-Harris classification, the way that I remember the Salter-Harris classification is easiest for me. I take the S, the A, the L, the T. I eliminate the E, and I use the R for the last one. There okay. are five different classifications. So if you have a bone that's standing on end, so the epiphysis is at the bottom, if you're setting it on a like table. Like a femur. I exactly. think about like a femur standing up. Exactly. Okay. So a femur is a great analogy or a great example. And the femur is on its end. So the, the bottom of the, the distal part of the femur is sitting on the table. Okay. So the epiphysis, again, is the growth plate. So the S for Salter-Harris is a, is a Salter-Harris 1. And that's a um, fracture that goes through the growth plate. Okay. So um, I think of that as... Uh, I use the S and I say same, so it's through okay. the growth plate, so it's the same. Okay. The A, which is a Salter-Harris II, is above the growth plate, so it's in the metaphysis. So it's into the growth plate and into the metaphysis. So that's Salter-Harris II, and it's above, so that's how I remember it. It's the second letter in Salter. Um, the L is lower, so it's in the epiphysis. So it goes through the growth plate and it goes down lower under the, under the epiphysis. And that's the Salter-Harris three. Okay. And then the T is throughout. That's how I remember Salter-Harris four. It's in the epiphysis and also goes through the metaphysis. Okay. That's how I remember So all that. above, through, and under, 
Low. Correct. Okay. And then we skip the E. We go give the Psalter uh, E a, um, a number. And then the R, which is a Psalter Harris 5, is ruined. So if the growth plate is ruined, like it's completely squashed, okay. then that's a Salter Harris 5. And there's more Salter Harris classifications, which you probably don't need to know about, and I don't think it's really that important. But those basic five, that's how I remember them. One is same, two is above, three is lower, four is throughout, epiphysis and uh, metaphysis, and then five is ruined. All right. You want to talk about green stick fractures? Sure. So a green stick fracture, we think of a green stick fracture as an incomplete fracture. So if you took a stick uh, that you found in your state of Arizona that's very dry and you bent it, it would crack. It would break. Yes. So that's that's um, a bone of somebody my age. <laughs> so a bone of somebody that's of young age, it's very moist, it's very pliable. If you mm -hmm. if you bend it, it's kind of like a um, it's kind of like a uh, rubber band. It'll bend, but then it won't break, and then but eventually, if you fatigue it enough, it will break. Okay. So a green stick fracture just be considered an incomplete fracture. Many of those green stick fractures have some rotation or have some convexity or concavity to them. So not all of them are treated closed, but some of them um, they just heal on their own because children are so pliable and they heal so well. That's what a green stick fracture is. All right. What we were thinking is we could start at the top and kind of go all the way through all the bones and the parts of the body. Does that work for you? Yep, that works for me. All right, so that means we're going to start with shoulder. I think what would be kind of helpful is just to give a quick little how to do the exam of each joint as we go, if that would work for you. I know you have some good videos, and we will put links through Twitter from ASAP to, on how to do an exam, but uh, could you just kind of talk about first the shoulder? Okay, so the shoulder is the most mobile joint of the body, and the mobility sacrificed by stability. So you've got great mobility, but it's also unstable. So to, the first thing you want to do when you're doing a shoulder examination is look at it. I think the common mistake that people make when they're doing shoulder exam is they don't undress the patient appropriately. So look at it. And you've got two to compare, so you can see what a, a normal shoulder and an abnormal shoulder look like. So that's the inspection part. Looking to see if you see any redness, you see any deformity, you see anything that's skin that might have been broken down or what have you. The inspection part is actually pretty easy. And then you start your palpation. You'll start palpating from the sternoclavicular joint, which is in the medial aspect of the, of the shoulder. And you work your way across the clavicle to the acromioclavicular joint. And you can work your way all the way down to the greater tuberosity of the shoulder and then back posteriorly to the spine of the scapula. And even you should include the neck exam as part of your shoulder examination as well. A range of motion will start with forward flexion, which is raising your, raising your shoulder in a plane, um, a sagittal plane that's um, from your waist all the way over your head. And then you'll do abduction, which is moving your shoulder away from your body um, in a plane, that, in an arc that should encompass 180 degrees to zero degrees. And then there's some special testing that you might do. You want to test the rotator cuff muscles, which if you guys remember, it's the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, teres minor, and subscapularis. And there's all specific, there's specific tests to each, each of those individual rotator cuff muscles. And then there's a few special tests that you should do with um, shoulder exam. You should always do a Sperling's test, which is testing for cervical radiculopathy, um, which is compression of the head with rotation and side bending. The Nears and Hawkins test will test for rotator cuff impingement, 
Um, a cross-arm test is as simple as taking your hand of the affected shoulder and touching the other AC joint, and that'll be helpful for diagnosing certain conditions as well. And then you should do the rest of the exam, including uh, upper extremity pulse pulses, as well as um, neurovascular exam, too. So uh, the boards want us to know kind of the appropriate initial management of sports-related shoulder injuries. Can you comment on that? Yeah, so a sports-related shoulder injury is a vast topic. So what I would tell somebody in a sports-related shoulder injury first is make sure you make the right diagnosis. Um, the right diagnosis is key to any treatment. So once you make the right diagnosis, then you're going to determine, is, is this something that may need advanced care? Um, typically, the screening test will go diagnosis, I'm sorry, examination, diagnosis, imaging, and then referral if necessary. So most sprains and strains won't require referral. They will require a period of uh, immobilization, maybe some ice, maybe some compression, and then maybe some early physical therapy, whereas some of the more complicated injuries might need a referral. Since we have to make the diagnosis to actually be able to do this correctly, what are some common diagnoses that of injuries that happen to the shoulder? Okay, so, so a few that are specific or very common to the pediatric population, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about clavicle fractures, which is the most commonly fractured bone in the bodies in, in the pediatric population. So clavicle fractures usually usually occur from falling onto uh, your shoulder directly, like falling off a bike or falling from height level. Unfortunately, sometimes from non-accidental trauma, but the clavicle fracture is the most common uh, fracture that you'll see in the pediatric population. Um, a chromiocovicular separation, so the AC joint, which is at the distal end of the clavicle, does not occur very commonly in the pediatric population until they get to um, sorry, teenage years. Because their kids are so pliable, they really don't. They would fracture the bone before they would um, um, have a separation, which is very different from a glenohumeral dislocation. So that nomenclature is often, often commonly misspoken as well, where a separation is the ligament has been injured, so it's a chromioclavicular separation, whereas the glenohumeral dislocation is the standard shoulder dislocation which that's, that's another um, injury that you'll see commonly. The um, shoulder dislocations usually occur when the arm is in an abducted position and externally rotated, and the shoulder dislocation is typically anterior. Greater than 90% of them are anterior dislocations, which means that the, the humerus is anterior to the glenoid, usually right underneath the coracoid process. Those managements, the, the management of those injuries is... Um, gentle closed reduction by whichever technique you feel most comfortable with, a short period of immobilization, and then physical therapy with uh, strengthening and range of motion. Um, the shoulder dislocations will also be recurrent, and up to 80% of initial shoulder dislocations will happen a second time, and once you've had it a second time, it's nearly 100% that you're going to have a third one. So after you have a shoulder dislocation, it's important that you refer them to orthopedic surgeons so they can see how they're uh, progressing with range of motion and strengthening. And if they have a recurrence, then it's going to need an operative repair. Shoulder dislocations are my favorite. Why I love that? them. Why I just love that? putting them in. They're so much fun. It's very rewarding. It is. It feels like, like you know, you actually get get to do it. It gets done. It's very technical, and the patient loves you for, yeah, for when you put them back in. Yeah, I totally great. agree. <laughs> 
what I would not feel happy doing would be an elbow relocation. So let's talk about the elbow. Okay. So yeah, elbow dislocations are more rare than shoulder dislocations or glenohumeral dislocations. Um, the glenohumeral dislocation is number one and elbow is number two. And commonly occurs from fall on outstretched hand, which um, gets the eponym foosh. And greater than 90% of elbow dislocations are posterior. And the uh, elbow dislocations, don't be scared of them, Ashley, because they're actually <laughs> fairly easy to do. If you just remember, you're trying to get the electronon away from the capitalum. You're trying to pull it away and then distract it or put traction um, back onto the uh, wrist and forearm. And usually it'll pop back in. They do typically require sedation, whereas in glenohumeral or shoulder dislocations, you can often get away without doing sedation. For more on the elbow, what kind of complications come from uh, the dislocation that we should be aware of and any kind of long-term treatment plans or management? Well, first of all, with any joint dislocation, let's make sure that we do a good neurovascular exam. We'll go back to the shoulder first of all. The axillary nerve is the most commonly injured nerve with shoulder dislocations and if you remember the axillary nerve wraps around the humerus so if you do two tests before you um, reduce a shoulder make sure you document that the axillary nerve is intact um, you do a sensory test which is just light touch over the deltoid that tests the axillary nerve and then if they can just abduct the shoulder one or two inches you know the deltoid is intact so make sure you document that pre and post procedure of the shoulder as far as elbow dislocations go, make sure you do, do a good neurovascular exam. You check the radial artery, you check the uh, ulnar nerve, you check sensation of the hand. Um, and then the complications of elbow dislocations are elbow instability. So many times, um, if there is a lateral or medial component to the dislocation, you can tear the ulnar collateral or radial collateral uh, ligaments. So make sure that you stress the elbow in varus and valgus stress after you reduce it um, because most elbow dislocations are not operative they're, if they're pure posterior, but if they do have a lateral medial component, then they may need an operative repair later. Um, in addition, almost all elbow dislocations and shoulder dislocations have a large degree of stiffness to them. Um, so it's important that you don't immobilize them for a month afterwards because one, they'll get atrophy, two, their stiffness will be exacerbated by that period of immobility. Um, give them a short period of immo immobility for pain control and then get them moving again as quickly as you can so you minimize that stiffness. Okay. So nerve artery injuries um, for all dislocation, make sure you do good exams pre and post and then don't immobilize them for long periods of time. Do short periods of immobilization. One of my absolute favorite things, I, I apparently I kind of like ortho, one of my favorite things is a radial head subluxation or the nursemaid's elbow? What is the kind of clinical presentation of that and how do you address it? So the clinical presentation of nursemaid's elbows is usually kids under five, um, and that's anatomically because they don't have uh, ligamentous structure to hold that radial head in place until they get a little bit older than five, or they don't develop that until they get older than five. And the typical presentation is, the classic presentation, as you know, is somebody that's swinging a young child around and you're playing with them and their arm is in extension and it's over their head and their wrist is pronated and the kid starts screaming and then won't move the arm. 
if you have the classic presentation, which I think often parents don't want to say because they're afraid that yeah, you're going to think they hurt them. Uh-huh. Um, they may kind of say, I don't know what happened. He just stopped moving their arm. I think that's pretty classic. Uh-huh. But if you pin them down that, that well, maybe that their um, teenage brother or sister was swinging around uh-huh. and, and they started having pain. But they'll come in and their arm will be at their side. You'll hold out something that might be of interest to that child, like your stethoscope or blow popsicle. up a glove, a popsicle, and they'll reach for it with the uh, unaffected side. And then when mom grabs the unaffected side, they won't reach for it with the affected side. So that's the typical and classic presentation. And how do you fix it? So there's lots of different ways to fix it. What I've always found that if you moved it, you usually would fix it. Yeah, and that's, true. that's probably not great for a podcast. We're trying to educate people. But it typically, if you supinate the arm or overpronate the That's arm and like flex you. it, you like the overpronation. I like the pronation. But... And then you flex it, you'll feel a little click or a clunk or um, a snap, and then the child will go back to using their arm. Um, interestingly enough, I don't know in the pediatric population how often you get x-rays pre or post nursemaid elbows. Usually just a trauma. Yeah. Yeah, so if there's a, a, traumatic, a traumatic presentation, I would do an x-ray. If I did those maneuvers, didn't feel much, and the kid still wasn't moving their arm, yeah. I would do an x-ray yeah, then reason. to make sure that I didn't miss something. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about the things. Oh, man. I get these confused every time. The Montasia and Galeazzi fractures. Okay, so you probably have heard me talk enough since you've been in the residency for quite a while that I hate eponyms. Eponyms are like one That's of my why least, I hate this one. least favorite things. I think that as, as non-orthopedists, we should be really good at describing what we see rather than using an eponym. Because if we make a mistake and we're talking to somebody in the middle of the night, they may think, oh, it's, that's just a Jones fracture. You don't have to do anything about that. Or if that's a dancer's fracture, we use them wrong. That Maybe that patient will be compromised with their follow-up. So, if you remember it this way, so a, a Galeazzi fracture is a um, is distal radius fracture um, with a distal radial ulnar joint disruption. And it's extremely rare in pediatrics. They don't see Galeazzi fractures very often. Okay. Um, but if you remember, it's the distal radius that's fractured with a distal radial ulnar joint um, dis- dislocation. Uh, the Montasia fracture, I remember the Montasia and the Galeazzi because an M for Montasia is closer to P, which means proximal. Okay. So it's it, it's a weird way to remember it, but it's a proximal radius dislocation uh, with an ulnar diaphyseal fracture. So Montasia is proximal uh, radius dislocation, whereas a Galeazzi fracture, I think I misspoke, is a distal radius dislocation okay. with an ulnar fracture associated with it. Okay. Both of them have ulnar fractures, just a matter of that. Where that, the radius is. Radial dislocation is distal for a distal radial ulnar joint, the okay. DRUJ, or it's proximal, which is the Montasia fracture. I just remember because the M and the P are close to the alpha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Otherwise, the injuries for um, description are close to the same. But both, unfortunately, are fairly rare in pediatrics. The um, Galeazzi fracture is unique, but very, very rare in pediatrics. Okay. Um, let's talk about the most common elbow fracture ish kind of elbow fracture in kids. So if you have a lateral x-ray and you see a posterior and an anterior fat pad, but you don't see anything, like maybe you don't actually see any fracture, but there's clearly something there. In adults, the most common cause would be a radial head fracture, but what would it be in kids? Super common one. 
And what's the best management for that? So it depends on the type of supercondylar fracture. We'll take a step back. So in 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 fat pad um, description, so an anterior fat pad can be normal. Right. So if you see an anterior fat pad, it doesn't mean that that's for sure something hidden in there. Um, a posterior fat pad is always abnormal. Um, the caveat to that is an anterior sale sign. So a very large fat pad is usually abnormal. Um, but I think. What's really important for especially the non-orthopedist pediatrics um, provider is to know how to read an x-ray. And so there's something called an uh, anterior humeral line on a lateral x-ray, and there's something called a uh, radio capitellar line on a, on a lateral x-ray. So the anterior humeral line, if you're looking at a lateral x-ray, should go through the middle third of the capitellum. If it doesn't go through the middle third of the capitellum, then you're going to make an assumption that you have a supercondylar fracture. Okay. Um, in the right setting, if somebody who's got a swollen elbow, they won't move it, obviously you're going to treat it as such. A radiocapitellar um, disruption, so if the, if the line going through the radius, the middle of the radius doesn't go through the capitellum, you can make assumption that you have a radial dislocation, so um, a radial head dislocation. So that's the important thing. I think reading pediatric elbow x-rays is very challenging, but if you can remember fat pads and anterior humeral line and radio capitellar line, it'll save you. And then the management after that is going to be um, uh, orthopedic follow-up. Splinting. Exactly. We'll put a picture of the x-ray with the lines drawn in on our Twitter for all of everyone so that they can look at it. Because I need the visual. Yeah, me too. All right, next we did... We did shoulder, elbow, now we're on to hand, wrist and hand. Really just wrist. So can we talk about um, wrist and finger injuries that are commonly associated with different sports? So some of the more common causes. Okay, so um, a couple that I wanted to comment on. So in the wrist, uh, the scaphoid fracture is obviously the most common. 70% of the wrist fractures are scaphoid fractures, almost always always occur um, from the mechanism of fall on outstretched hand, which is foosh. It's pain in the anatomic snuff box um, and swelling and decreased mobility is what you'll typically see. Um, the, the pitfall to uh, fall on outstretched hand with pain in the snuff box in an x-ray that is negative is that in the pediatric population, you can see, you can have, I'm sorry, a scaphoid fracture and not see it on an x-ray. So the appropriate management for somebody with fallen outstretched hand, pain in the anatomic snuff box, is to splint them uh, with an ulnar gutter splint um, and have them follow up in two weeks for a repeat x-ray. Do you mean a sorry. thumb spike a splint? Yes, thank you very much, Dr. Gigi. <laughs> next spoke, it's a thumb spike a splint, yes. It's okay. Um, okay. Then let's talk about what other ones. I only can think of one other one, so I'm going to need you to fill me in. I only can come up with gamekeeper's thumb. Okay, so in the hand, definitely. There, I mean, there's a bunch yeah, yeah. of different wrist injuries that I think that would be um, beyond the scope of this discussion. But in the hand, there's three. So the first is a jersey finger. So a jersey finger, so imagine if you're playing football and you grab onto someone's jersey and they pull away from you. So a jersey finger is a disruption of the flexor digitorum. So it's a tear of the flexor digitorum. And the jersey finger, uh, 
is treated surgically. Oh. So if you tear the flexor digitorum of the finger, it's not going to be repaired on its own. Um, a mallet finger, which is on the other side of the hand, it's an extensor tendon injury, typically occurs by you know, basketball, baseball. If somebody would throw a ball to you, maybe you weren't ready and it hit the back on the dorsal side of your hand uh, while you were uh, in resisted extension that would tear that extensor tendon. Um, it's at the uh, DIP joint, so it's at the distal finger, and it's the extensor digitorum that's torn. Um, you'll also see those in baseball and softball occasionally. Um, and those are treated with uh, extension splints that only cover the distal, distal interphalangeal joint, and they have to be on for six weeks. The important thing about those is that if you take it off, then the you lose tendon it. will be relaxed and you'll re-tear the tendon. You have to start the clock over again if you take it off and uh, don't keep it in extension. That stinks. That does stink. <laughs> and then finally, the gamekeeper's thumb, which is not uncommon in skiing or soccer or anywhere where you go to grab something and your thumb is placed in hyperabduction against the owner collateral ligament. It's very important that you don't miss this injury because if you miss a gamekeeper's thumb, the patient may not be able to pinch. Hmm. Um, so it's a morbid condition that you don't want to miss. And those are treated depending on the extensiveness of the injury, either with a thumb spica splint again or with surgery, depending on the grade of that um, the gamekeeper's thumb injury. But the, the true term of the gamekeeper's thumb is ulnar collateral ligament injury of the thumb. Thank you. No more eponyms. Get rid of them. <laughs> Stamping them out. Just say no. <laughs> we get to move on to the hip. Now, the two things they want us to know about for the hip um, are not sports related, but they are always tested, I feel like. The skiffy and the leg calf, calves perfies release. Okay. So pretty easy to remember these. We'll just go over them. Individually, so the skiffy, the slipped capital femoral epiphysis, is a growth plate injury. It's the non, number one cause of non-traumatic hip pain in adolescence, typically in the age between 11 and 16. Um, the prototype, prototypical uh, patient um, demographic is heavier um, and sometimes hormonal. So there's some there's some endocrine abnormalities associated with slipped capital femoral epiphysis. Um, they will present with pain to the thigh, knee, or groin. It'll be an achy type pain. Um, and they might also have a limp. And on an x-ray, it'll look like um, the epiphysis of the femoral head is slipped off. And it's really not the femoral head that's slipped off. It's the distal part of the hip that's slipped down. So the classic teaching is a scoop of ice cream that's falling off of the cone. Okay. And when you get a pelvis x-ray, you can see the normal side, you can see the abnormal side, and and um, uh, these are typically treated in a surgical repair. As opposed to leg calperthes disease, which is um, ischemic necrosis of the femoral epiphysis, typically occurs in a younger age group between four and eight years of age. Males predominate in this category, and these are typically self-limited. We'll often have some bracing associated with it to help the the symptoms as well as the anatomic abnormality of blood flow in this area. Yeah, so those are the, that's the difference between the, the skiffy and the um, leg calves perthes disease. How about 
the knee. Now, like we just talked about, oftentimes in kids, we'll complain of the knee and it's really the hip, but let's, they're actually having knee pain and it's actually the knee for this discussion. But um, can we talk about sports-related patellofemoral dysfunction and mm-hmm. how to manage that and what exactly that looks like? Yeah, so um, the number one cause of anterior knee pain in the pediatric population is um, patellofemoral pain syndrome or patellofemoral stress syndrome. So you hear it called PFPS and you also hear it called PFSS. So this is an abnormality of muscle um, inequality. So as you can remember, the, the patella glides through the femoral notch and as it glides through the femoral notch, it's a smooth articulation. And if one of your quads, one of the um, heads of your quads is stronger than another, then the patella seems to drift laterally, which makes that patella not glide through the femoral notch smoothly. Um, so patients will complain of pain in the peripatellar area. So on the medial or the lateral aspect of the patella, or maybe in the alien complaint underneath the patella. They'll say the pain is worse when they go up or down stairs. They'll say that they have pain when they sit for a long period of time, then they go to stand. That's called the moviegoer sign. Um, So imagine if you sat through a whole movie, then you stood up, and then you started to have pain. They'll often have some swelling, but it can be very debilitating and cause, cause patients to not be able to participate in sports or regular activities. And fortunately, the treatment is very simple. It's usually... Um, strengthen the other quads? Strengthen the medial side of the quad. Okay. So it's your leg extensions with your foot pointed outward. It typically will help strengthen the vastus medialis of the quadricep. And then some hamstring stretching, some ice, and maybe even an inset if you feel like you want to use um, one of those. But these will typically go away once you make an accurate diagnosis um, and um, give them appropriate treatment. You want to make sure you don't miss Osgood-Slaughter disease, which is another one of the anterior knee pain, and then the uh, Sending-Larsen-Johansson syndrome as well, which is the inferior pole of the patella, uh, apophysitis too. You don't oh. want to miss those too. Okay. And those pains would be more on the lower pole? So the Osgood-Slaughter disease is specific to the tibial tuberosity, okay. so where the um, uh, patella inserts. And then sending larsen johansson is the inferior pole of the patella. So it's an apophysitis between the inferior oh. pole of the patella and the tibial tuberosity. They're just oh. two different locations, but it's the same mechanism of injury. And once the gross place views that you don't have Osgood slaughter disease or sending larsen johansson syndrome. Okay. Okay, let's do another one of the things I loved to fix, a patellar dislocation. Okay, so this is one of my favorites too, Ashley, is, is patellar subluxation. So... It's not been rare that a medic has called in and said they had a knee dislocation. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, how did this happen? It's usually typically an adolescent or teenage girl that is dancing or is you know, doing something silly that um, the knee is in a valgus stress and the kneecap pops out, So, which is much different than a knee dislocation. Yeah, yeah. A knee dislocation is very high velocity, lots of energy, lots of force. It's not lots a, of badness. Lots of badness, lots of potential injury, and lots of morbidity associated with it, as everybody knows. But the patellar dislocation is usually a low-velocity injury where the patella subluxes or dislocates laterally. Um, I've told residents for a lot of years, if you ever see a medial patella uh, dislocation, call me and send me a picture because I want to see it. 
I've never seen one. Because you're not going <laughs> and, and typically, all you have to do with the patellar dislocation is to straighten the knee and gently push the patella over because they'll come with their knee bent and their patella out to the side. They're usually crying and hysterical, yeah. and, and you straighten the knee, and it goes right They look down. awful, but they're, they're really fun. Yeah, back. yeah, they are. They're great. But there's actually quite a bit of morbidity associated with patellar subluxations. It's not unusual that they will get an osteochondral defect as that patella slides out and jams up against the, um, the femur. You'll have essentially a divot on the underside of that patella that can cause um, a lot of pain and some morbidity and eventually surgery if, you, um, if the osteochondral defect has a loose body associated with it. They almost always have recurrence. And they almost always have chronic anterior knee pain and feeling of instability. So even though our job is done to get it back in, make sure we give them appropriate referral to orthopedics for follow-up, physical, physical therapy, and then a course of rest, ice, compression, and um, um, aggressive early treatment so they know what to expect. Okay. All right, then let's get to the uh, internal knee. So ACL, MCL, meniscus, all those fun things. Okay, so... These are relatively rare in the pediatric population. There are cases of anterior cruciate ligament injury, posterior cruciate ligament injury, um, medial collateral and lateral collateral ligament injury, but they're very, they're rare. They don't happen unless it's very high velocity. Um, obviously, you need to know how to do a good knee exam, um, including a varus and valgus stress and compare the other side, a Lachman's test or an anterior drawer test to evaluate the stability of the ACL and PCL, and then meniscal tears, you know, those those you usually make um, by history. It's a sharp pain. It's a joint line pain. Uh, you can do a McMurray's test, which is essentially just grinding the, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the tibia into the femur to try to reproduce pain, and the pain is almost always sharp. But something to keep in mind, if you have somebody who has an acute hemarthrosis of the knee, and they don't have a fracture on x-ray, then ACL becomes very high on your differential diagnosis if the uh, hemarthrosis or the, the swelling of the knee has occurred within the first one or two hours. Okay. So just keep that in mind. Oh, Down to our last joint, the ankle. Very common, I feel like, pathology or injury at least. Can you kind of talk about the management of an uncomplicated ankle sprain? Yeah, so management of uncomplicated ankle sprain is first one to make sure you get the diagnosis right. There's a lot of things that might um, might mask itself as an ankle sprain that might have some morbidity associated with it. We can talk about it here in a minute. So if you if you have somebody that passes the Ottawa ankle rules and you decide you're not going to X-ray them and you're saving them a lot of money and a lot of time and you just want to treat their ankle sprain, you just, if you remember initially, it's just going to be the rice treatment. So rest, ice, compression, elevation. You don't want to tell them to ice any longer than 15 or 20 minutes. You tell them to do it four or five times a day, hoping they get two or three times under their belt. <laughs> um, if you need to give them crutches, you're going to give them crutches because you want a period of, of relative rest. But I think the really important part, especially from somebody that's going to um, hopefully get back into sport, is that once you're over that acute injury, you want to make sure that you tell the patient or refer the patient to somebody who can teach them how to do three different things. One is strengthening. Um, the strengthening of those ligaments and the muscles around those ligaments is crucial to the return to sport. And the second is proprioception. So 
as you, it's been proven that as you injure an ankle, that the nerve fibers in those ligaments get injured and you have an inability to balance yourself after you've had an ankle injury. So if you, if you just tell somebody, you know, once you get your strength back and you get your motion back, stand on one leg with no shoes on, and that'll help train the ankle to proprioception to retrain those injured um, nerve endings to um, protect the ankle when it gets in the position of compromise. And then finally is mobility. And I do something as simple as tell the patient, you know, after your swelling goes down, I want you to draw the large letters of the alphabet with your toes, um, A to Z, a couple times a day, just so you get motion back because the ankle becomes very stiff. So after the rice treatment, you want to make sure you, you teach them how to propriocept um, just by standing on one leg with no shoes on. You want to make sure their mobility is back. I'm going to draw the large letters of the alphabet and then to make sure they have their strength back. And you can do strength training by something as simple as an elastic band, um, holding it between, wrapped around your ankle and in between your hands and to go um, lateral medially and then dorsiflex and plantar flex with it. All right, well, what are some of the things that can mask as a ankle sprain? Yeah, so there's lots of things that will mask as ankle sprains that the Ottawa ankle growth will not get. Achilles injury is probably yeah. number one. You know, it's not very common in the p true pediatric population. Maybe you'll see it in um, some of the older kids, but Achilles tendon ruptures are usually maybe adolescents. The actually the mean age of Achilles tendon ruptures is 37. Oh. So it's not common in a pediatric yeah. group, but you, you have to be aware that you might you might see it. Um, uh, a Salter Harris uh, injury, especially a Salter Harris one, which is um, by definition a normal X-ray, but mm -hmm. pain in the growth plate. So you you might miss that. Um, this is one of the complications. Um, a high ankle sprain. I'm going to put that into quotes, and that's a syndesmotic injury. Okay. So the syndesmosis between the tibia and the fibula. If you have somebody that's played a sport and it's not the typical mechanism of inversion, um, which is most common with uh, uh, ankle injuries, you might you might put a high ankle sprain on your differential, which is um, the syndesmosis between the tibia and fibula, and then uh, a mesonew fracture as well. So oh, you yeah. can have somebody who has um, dorsiflexed and externally rotated their ankle, and the force has been transmitted up through the ankle, and then all the way up through the fibula, and the fibula snaps. That's the mesonew mechanism of injury. And then a fifth metatarsal injury. If you're following strictly Ottawa ankle rules, you may avoid palpating the fifth metatarsal, but with an inversion, the um, avulsion fracture from the peroneus tendon will pull that fifth metatarsal and cause a fracture. So there is a group of potential injuries that are you would not see on an X-ray if you were just going, or would not follow the Ottawa ankle rules. So you have to be aware of them. For our listeners who don't know the Ottawa ankle rules, can we just go over them? Sure. So the auto ankle rules first is, do they have tenderness at the posterior edge of the distal six centimeters of the fibula or the lateral malleolus? That's number one. Number two is, do they have tenderness along the posterior edge of the distal six centimeters of the tibia or the medial malleolus? And then an inability to walk uh, four steps both immediately and in the emergency department. That's the last one. If you combine the Ottawa foot rules, which would add pain at the navicular and pain at the fifth metatarsal, then that would complete the Ottawa ankle and foot rules. Okay, and if you're negative on all of them, very low likelihood that you have a fracture and they don't need an x-ray. That's right, they don't need an x-ray. But, but now you you're fail any one of them, fail any one, you get an x-ray. Fail any one, you, you should do an x-ray. The hard part is convincing the patient that they don't need the x-ray. Mm -hmm. Most of them think that 
your medical knowledge of Ottawa ankle or foot rules is not enough and that an x-ray is necessary for their appropriate management. That is true. <laughs> all right. Anything? I think that was all of our stuff that we needed to cover, although there's a million other things. Lots of things to talk about, but yeah. that sure was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Yeah.